Chapters three and four of the Man in Lower Ten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Man in Lower Ten by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter three. Across the Isle. No solution offering itself, I went back to my berth. The snore across had apparently strangled or turned over, and so after a time I dropped asleep, to be awakened by the morning sunlight across my face. I felt for my watch. Yawning prodigiously, I reached under the pillow and failed to find it, but something scratched the back of my hand. I sat up irritably and nursed the wound, which was bleeding a little. Still drowsy, I felt more cautiously for what I supposed had been my scarf pin, but there was nothing there. Wide awake now, I reached for my traveling bag, on the chance that I had put my watch in there. I had drawn the satchel to me and had my hand on the lock before I realized that it was not my own. Mine was of alligator hide. I had killed the beast in Florida, after the expenditure of enough money to have bought a house and enough energy to have built one. The bag I held in my hand was a black one, seal skin, I think. The staggering thought of what the loss of my bag meant to me put my finger on the bell and kept it there until the porter came. Did you ring, sir? he asked, poking his head through the curtains obsequiously. McKnight objects that nobody can poke his head through a curtain and be obsequious, but Pullman porters can and do. No, I snapped. It rang itself. What in thunder do you mean by exchanging my valise for this one? You'll have to find it if you waken the entire car to do it. There are important papers in that grip. Porter called a feminine voice from an upper berth nearby. Porter, am I to dangle here all day? Let her dangle, I said savagely. You find that bag of mine. The porter frowned. Then he looked at me with injured dignity. I brought in your overcoat, sir. You carried your own valise. The fellow was right. In an excess of caution, I had refused to relinquish my alligator bag and had turned over my other traps to the porter. It was clear enough then. I was simply a victim of the usual sleeping car robbery. I was in a lather of perspiration by that time. The lady down the car was still dangling and talking about it. Still nearer, a feminine voice was giving quick orders in French, presumably to a maid. The porter was on his knees, looking under the berth. Not there, sir, he said, dusting his knees. He was visibly more cheerful, having been absolved of responsibility. Reckon it was taken while you was wandering around the car last night. I'll give you fifty dollars if you find it, I said. A hundred. Reach up my shoes and I'll... I stopped abruptly. My eyes were fixed in stupefied amazement on a coat that hung from a hook at the foot of my berth. From the coat they traveled, dazed, to the soft-bosomed shirt beside it, and from there to the collar and cravat in the net hammock across the windows. A hundred, the porter repeated, showing his teeth, but I caught him by the arm and pointed to the foot of the berth. What, what color is that coat? I asked unsteadily. Gray, sir. His tone was one of gentle reproof. And the trousers? He reached over and held up one creased leg. Gray, too, he grinned. Gray, I could not believe even his corroboration of my own eyes. But my clothes were blue. The porter was amused. He dived under the curtains and brought up a pair of shoes. Your shoes, sir, he said with a flourish. Reckon you've been dreaming, sir. Now, there are two things I always avoid in my dress, possibly an idiosyncrasy of my bachelor existence. 
These taboo articles are red neckties and tan shoes. And not only were the shoes the porter lifted from the floor of a gorgeous shade of yellow, but the scarf which was run through the turned-over collar was a gaudy red. It took a full minute for the real import of things to penetrate my dazed intelligence. Then I gave a vindictive kick at the offending ensemble. They're not mine, any of them, I snarled. They are some other fellows. I'll sit here until I take root before I put them on. They're nice-looking clothes, the porter put in, eyeing the red necktie with appreciation. Ain't everybody would have left you anything. Call the conductor, I said shortly. Then a possible explanation occurred to me. Oh, porter, what's the number of this berth? Seven, sir. If you can't wear those shoes. Seven. In my relief I almost shouted it. Why, then, it's simple enough. I'm in the wrong berth, that's all. My berth is nine. Only, where the deuce is the man who belongs here? Likely in nine, sir. The darky was enjoying himself. You and the other gentleman just got mixed in the night. That's all, sir. It was clear that he thought I had been drinking. I drew a long breath. Of course, that was the explanation. This was number seven's berth. That was his soft hat. This, his umbrella, his coat, his bag. My rage turned to irritation at myself. The porter went to the next berth, and I could hear his softly insinuating voice. Time to get up, sir. Are you awake? Time to get up. There was no response from number nine. I guessed that he had opened the curtains and was looking in. Then he came back. Number nine's empty, he said. Empty? Do you mean my clothes aren't there? I demanded. My valise? Why don't you answer me? You don't give me time, he retorted. There ain't nothing there, but it's been slept in. The disappointment was the greater for my few moments of hope. I sat up in a white fury and put on the clothes that had been left me. Then, still raging, I sat on the edge of the berth and put on the obnoxious tan shoes. The porter, called to his duties, made little excursions back to me to offer assistance and to chuckle at my discomfiture. He stood by, outwardly decorous, but with little irritating grins of amusement around his mouth, when I finally emerged with the red tie in my hand. "'Bet the owner of those clothes didn't become them any more than you do,' he said, as he plied the ubiquitous whisk-broom. "'When I get the owner of these clothes,' I retorted grimly, "'he will need a shroud. Where's the conductor?' The conductor was coming, he assured me, also that there was no bag answering the description of mine on the car. I slammed my way to the dressing-room, washed, choked my fifteen-and-a-half neck into a fifteen collar, and was back again in less than five minutes. The car, as well as its occupants, was gradually taking on a daylight appearance. I hobbled in, for one of the shoes was abominably tight, and found myself facing a young woman in blue, with an unforgettable face. Three women already,' McKnight says. "'That's going some, even if you don't count the Gilmore nurse.' She stood half-turned toward me, one hand idly drooping, the other steadying her as she gazed out at the flying landscape. I had an instant impression that I had met her somewhere, under different circumstances, more cheerful ones, I thought, for the girl's dejection now was evident. Beside her, sitting down, a small dark woman, considerably older, was talking in a rapid undertone. The girl nodded indifferently now and then. I fancied, although I was not sure, that my appearance brought a startled look to the young woman's face. I sat down and, 
hands thrust deep into the other man's pockets, stared ruefully at the other man's shoes. The stage was set. In a moment the curtain was going up on the first act of the play, and for a while we would all say our little speeches and sing our little songs, and I, the villain, would hold center stage while the gallery hissed. The porter was standing beside lower ten. He had reached in and was knocking valiantly, but his efforts met with no response. He winked at me over his shoulder. Then he unfastened the curtains and bent forward. Behind him I saw him stiffen, heard his muttered exclamation, saw the bluish pallor that spread over his face and neck. As he retreated a step the interior of lower ten lay open to the day. The man in it was on his back the early morning sun striking full on his upturned face. But the light did not disturb him. A small stain of red dyed the front of his nightclothes and trailed across the sheet. His half-opened eyes were fixed, without seeing, on the shining wood above. I grasped the porter's shaking shoulders and stared down to where the train imparted to the body a grisly suggestion of motion. "'Good Lord!' I gasped. "'The man's been murdered!' Chapter 4. Numbers 7 and 9. Afterwards, when I tried to recall our discovery of the body in Lower Ten, I found that my most vivid impression was not that made by the revelation of the opened curtain. I had an instantaneous picture of a slender, blue-gowned girl who seemed to sense my words rather than hear them, of two small hands that clutched desperately at the seat beside them. The girl in the aisle stood, bent toward us, perplexity and alarm fighting in her face. With twitching hands the porter attempted to draw the curtains together. Then, in a paralysis of shock, he collapsed on the edge of my berth, and sat there swaying. In my excitement I shook him. "'For heaven's sake, keep your nerve, man,' I said brusquely. "'You'll have every woman in the car in hysterics, and if you do, you'll wish you could change places with that man in there.' He rolled his eyes. A man near, who had been reading last night's paper, dropped it quickly and tiptoed toward us. He peered between the partly opened curtains, closed them quietly, and went back, ostentatiously solemn, to his seat. The very crackle with which he opened his paper added to the bursting curiosity of the car, for the passengers knew that something was amiss. I was conscious of a sudden tension. With the curtains closed, the porter was more himself. He wiped his lips with a handkerchief, and stood erect. "'It's my last trip in this car,' he remarked heavily. "'There's something wrong with that berth. Last trip the woman in it took an overdose of some sleeping stuff, and we found her, just like that, dead. And it ain't more'n three months now since there was twins born in that very spot. No, sir, it ain't natural.' At that moment a thin man with prominent eyes and a spare, grayish goatee creaked up the aisle and paused beside me. "'Porter sick?' he inquired, taking in with a professional eye the porter's horror-struck face, my own excitement, and the slightly gaping curtains of lower ten. He reached for the darkie's pulse and pulled out an old-fashioned gold watch. "'Hm. Only fifty. What's the matter? Had a shock?' he asked shrewdly. "'Yes,' I answered for the porter. "'We've both had one. "'If you are a doctor, I wish you would look at the man in the berth across, lower ten. "'I'm afraid it's too late, but I'm not experienced in such matters.' "'Together we opened the curtains, and the doctor, bending down, "'gave a comprehensive glance that took in the rolling head, 
the relaxed jaw, the ugly stain on the sheet. The examination needed only a moment. Death was written in the clear white of the nostrils, the colorless lips, the smoothing away of the sinister lines of the night before. With its new dignity the face was not unhandsome, the gray hair was still plentiful, the features strong and well cut. The doctor straightened himself and turned to me. "'Dead for some time,' he said, running a professional finger over the stains. "'These are dry and darkened, you see, and rigor mortis is well established. A friend of yours?' "'I don't know him at all,' I replied. "'Never saw him but once before.' "'Then you don't know if he is travelling alone?' "'No, he was not. That is, I don't know anything about him,' I corrected myself. "'It was my first blunder.' The doctor glanced up at me quickly, and then turned his attention again to the body. Like a flash there had come to me the vision of the woman with the bronze hair and the tragic face, whom I had surprised in the vestibule between the cars, somewhere in the small hours of the morning. I had acted on my first impulse, the masculine one of shielding a woman. The doctor had unfastened the coat of the striped pajamas and exposed the dead man's chest. On the left side was a small punctured wound of insignificant size. "'Very neatly done,' the doctor said with appreciation. "'Couldn't have done it better myself. Right through the intercoastal space. No time even to grunt.' "'Isn't the heart around there somewhere?' I asked. The medical man turned toward me and smiled austerely. "'That's where it belongs, just under the puncture, when it isn't gadding about in a man's throat or his boots.' I had a new respect for the doctor, for anyone indeed who could crack even a feeble joke under such circumstances— or who could run an impersonal finger over that wound and those stains. Odd how a healthy, normal man holds the medical profession in half-contemptuous regard until he gets sick, or an emergency like this arises, and then turns meekly to the man who knows the ins and outs of his mortal tenement, takes his pills or his patronage, ties to him like a rudderless ship in a gale. "'Suicide, is it, doctor?' I asked. He stood erect, after drawing the bedclothing over the face and taking off his glasses. He wiped them slowly. "'No, it is not suicide,' he announced decisively. "'It is murder.' Of course I had expected that, but the word itself brought a shiver. I was just a bit dizzy. Curious faces through the car were turning toward us, and I could hear the porter behind me breathing audibly. A stout woman in negligee came down the aisle and curiously confronted the porter. She wore a pink dressing-jacket and carried portions of her clothing. "'Porter,' she began, in the voice of the lady who had dangled, "'is there a rule of this company that will allow a woman to occupy the dressing-room for one hour and curl her hair with an alcohol lamp, while respectable people haven't a place where they can hook their—' She stopped suddenly and stared into lower ten. Her shining pink cheeks grew pasty. Her jaw fell. I remember trying to think of something to say— and of saying nothing at all. Then she had buried her eyes in the nondescript garments that hung from her arm and tottered back the way she had come. Slowly a little knot of men gathered around us, silent for the most part. The doctor was making a search of the berth when the conductor elbowed his way through, followed by the inquisitive man, who had evidently summoned him. I had lost sight, for a time, of the girl in blue. "'Do it himself?' the conductor queried, after a business-like glance at the body. No, he didn't, the doctor asserted. There's no weapon here, and the window is closed. He couldn't have thrown it out, and he didn't swallow it. What on earth are you looking for, man? Someone was on the floor at our feet, 
face down, head peering under the berth. Now he got up without apology, revealing the man who had summoned the conductor. He was dusty, alert, cheerful, and he dragged up with him the dead man's suitcase. The sight of it brought back to me at once my own predicament. "'I don't know whether there's any connection or not, conductor,' I said. "'But I am a victim, too, in less degree. "'I've been robbed of everything I possess except a red and yellow bathrobe. "'I happened to be wearing the bathrobe, which was probably the reason the thief overlooked it.' There was a fresh murmur in the crowd. Somebody laughed nervously. The conductor was irritated. "'I can't bother with that now,' he snarled. The railroad company is responsible for transportation, not for clothes, jewelry, and morals. If people want to be stabbed and robbed in the company's cars, it's their affair. Why didn't you sleep in your clothes? I do. I took an angry step forward. Then somebody touched my arm, and I unclenched my fist. I could understand the conductor's position, and beside, in the law, I had been guilty myself of contributory negligence. I'm not trying to make you responsible, I protested, as amiably as I could and I believe the clothes the thief left are as good as my own. They are certainly newer. But my valise contained valuable papers, and it is to your interest as well as mine to find the man who stole it. Why, of course, the doctor said shrewdly. Find the man who skipped out with this gentleman's clothes, and you've probably got the murderer. I went to bed in lower nine, I said, my mind full again of my lost papers, and I wakened in number seven. I was up in the night prowling around, as I was unable to sleep, and I must have gone back to the wrong berth. Anyhow, until the porter wakened me this morning, I knew nothing of my mistake. In the interval the thief—murderer, too, perhaps—must have come back, discovered my error, and taken advantage of it to further his escape. The inquisitive man looked at me from between narrowed eyelids, ferret-like. "'Did any one on the train suspect you of having valuable papers?' he inquired. The crowd was listening intently. "'No one,' I answered promptly and positively. The doctor was investigating the murdered man's effects. The pockets of his trousers contained the usual miscellany of keys and small change, while in his hip pocket was found a small pearl-handed revolver, of the type women usually keep around. A gold watch with a masonic charm had slid down between the mattress and the window, while a showy diamond stud was still fastened in the bosom of his shirt. Taken as a whole, the personal belongings were those of a man of some means, but without any particular degree of breeding. The doctor heaped them together. Either robbery was not the motive, he reflected, or the thief overlooked these things in his hurry. The latter hypothesis seemed the more tenable when, after a thorough search, we found no pocketbook and less than a dollar in small change. The suitcase gave no clue. It contained one empty leather-colored flask and a pint bottle, also empty, a change of linen, and some collars with the laundry mark S.H. In the leather tag on the handle was a card with the name Simon Harrington, Pittsburgh. The conductor sat down on my unmade berth across, and made an entry of the name and address. Then, on an old envelope, he wrote a few words, and gave it to the porter, who disappeared. "'I guess that's all I can do,' he said. I've had enough trouble this trip to last for a year. They don't need a conductor on these trains any more. What they ought to have is a sheriff and a posse. The porter from the next car came in and whispered to him. The conductor rose unhappily. Next car's caught the disease, he grumbled. Doctor, a woman back there has got mumps or bubonic plague or something. Will you come back? The strange porter stood aside. 
"'Lady about the middle of the car,' he said. "'In black, sir, with queer-looking hair, sort of copper color, I think, sir.'" End of chapter 4